kind of get started, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we finished painting yesterday, uh, the offices, and uh, I just want to say thank you to those who volunteer. You need to give credit where credit is due, right? So, um, so I think of, uh, I'm going to try and remember all the names, Debo and Kwaku and Mike uh, Clarkson and Jason and uh, Daniel um, and Nancy. Those are, I think, were everyone who painted with us. So thank you so much for helping, and we continue to pray for the Woods family, and as they transitioned here, we just need to do the carpet now. So that's exciting. I'm getting old. All right, please turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be on page 533 in that blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And as you turn there, I'm going to ask Olamide. She's going to read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 53 for me. Um, because she's going to do it better than I can. So follow along with us, and this is the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and sisters, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, because he lived in Iran, and said to him, Go out from your land, and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Aran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which we are now. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But God promised to give him to him as a possession and to his offspring after him though he had said he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who will enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so, Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a great famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph finally, and Joseph's family became known as, known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Ammon in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dwelt shrewdly with our race 
and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And, since, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronged, who has wronged his neighbor, trust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge of us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this result, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian when he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years has passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people whining in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness. angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who has led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephen, the images that you made to worship, 
and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it our fathers in turn brought it in with Joseph when they dispossessed the nation that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff naked people, uncircumcised in art and art. You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your father did, so you do. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You will receive the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they had these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garment at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And, he, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. Thank you, Alameda. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. Lord, we are just amazed by what you have done and the great things that you have done throughout history. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you, I want to preach so that you are glorified and I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well by your spirit? Help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Give me the power and the appropriate affection. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So since I asked Olamide to read all 50, or all chapter seven, that means it doesn't count to my time. So I'm just saying. There was an ulterior motive in this. But 53 verses, we could have split it up, but you can't. It is a single defense. So let's read it together. And one of the aspects and one of the joys I have of reading through a book and preaching through a book is that if you come every Sunday, uh, you get to have read through a whole book together. And that's a huge blessing to us. It's one of the things that I cherish and love about why we're doing uh, Titus together as a church, and I pray and encourage you to do that as well. But in verses, chapter 6, verse 8 to 8, verse 11, is all one narrative. 
Okay, it's all one story. So even though we are walking through it in a few sections, um, it's important to remember that this is all one narrative, okay? Because if we take things out of context, especially Stephen's speech here or her sermon, then it doesn't make any sense. So we have to put it into the context of what is happening around him. Remember, Stephen was preaching and doing great and marvelous things to the people. He is now dragged to the council by the uh, Sanhedrin of the freemen that we saw last week. And as he's standing there and he's arguing with them, the Holy Spirit empowers him to stay faithful during this time of trial. So now he's standing there in this council, in this group of religious leaders, and he's giving a further defense of what is happening as the Holy Spirit begins to do that. So remember that the defense that he's doing and everything that he's addressing in these 53 verses is addressing the arguments or the accusations that have been given to him. Remember, they've charged him with blasphemy against the temple and against Moses. So he begins to flush this out, going all the way back to Abraham about how God was with his people even before there was a temple. So now we come to this part. So remember Acts 6, verses 11, when it says, when they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Or in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, for we have heard him, uh, heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So Stephen takes time to retell the history of Israel to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God did throughout Israel's history. This is what Jesus himself says about in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Stephen points out that it's not him that is disobeying God. It's the people who are accusing him of blasphemy that are disobeying God, truly showing their hearts and what they are clinging to. So in verses 1 to 50, we hear this thing that says, hear me and remember. And Stephen comes four sections here, four groups of people, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David slash Solomon. And these are four points in history that Stephen points to make his defense. In verses 2 to 8, he calls the people to remember what God did with Abraham. Brothers and fathers, he says, we are of the same faith and, and spiritual lineage and heritage Let's remember that the glory of God, how he showed himself in a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He showed his glory to us in Mount Sinai. He showed his glory in the tabernacle. Remember how he was with Abraham before there was a temple or even a promised land doing great things. God was present with Abraham even though he was a migrant who had nowhere to call home. And he appeared to our father Abraham, he continues on. He showed himself to Abraham, not in a specific geographical location like a temple or in Jerusalem. God's redemptive plan starts with his promise of inheritance of Abraham's children. And something that's interesting about Abraham is something that we need to remember in the context is that God calls Abraham. Abraham was not seeking after God. In fact, Joshua 24 verse 2 says that Abraham was worshiping other gods and serving other gods, that Yahweh was just one of them. But God calls him out of that kingdom of darkness and brings him into his marvelous light. 
We call that grace. And Abraham did nothing to deserve God's promise on his life. What an example of what Paul says in Romans 5, 10, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So Abraham was called by God while serving other gods, and Abraham's own hands didn't save him, but God showed grace towards him. God was present with Abraham before there was even a temple. As Stephen begins to build this calling the people to remember what God has done. God called Abraham and his family from what is now modern-day Iraq to the land God would one day give to his children. And remember that the text says not even a foot was given to him. It's like a tease almost, isn't it? You know what you're getting for Christmas, but you can't touch it? But he was faithful. He rested in the promises of God during that time. And God continued to be with him. God was working in Abraham's life even before there was a temple. And even with the covenant of circumcision, which was mentioned in verse 8, Israel made it a badge of ethnic identity that pointed to a favored status. But for Abraham, it was a reminder of God's promise of something that is, is far greater. So Stephen says, remember what God did with Abraham, he says. He says, think of these outward symbols that make you feel safe and secure. He's telling those people who are listening to his defense. Abraham was living in light of eternity. And this covenant had been fulfilled in Christ, as Romans 4 says. See, what Stephen is pointing to is that it was the people listening who had rejected the one the covenant pointed to. Jesus is the righteous one. The one who fulfilled the promise and clung to, and, and these people were clinging to buildings that they had built with their own hands rather than the one who saves. There's so much in this passage, and this is just a quick summary, so I encourage you to dig deep into it yourself. It is a great testimony of God sovereignly and providentially working throughout history to save a people for himself. But in verses 9 to 16, we see that God even begins to call us to remember what he did with Joseph. I think uh, we forget uh, Joseph, and we always picture him in terms of like veggie tales or something. But Joseph wasn't very liked by his family. And you can hear the story about that in Genesis 37 to 50. Israel's fathers were blessed by the one they rejected as Stephen says. And throughout Stephen's speech, there is a common thread that is being sown. Israel has consistently rejected God's chosen leaders, which culminates ultimately in the rejection of Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. Stephen is accused of blaspheming Moses, but history shows that it was Israel, the Israelites who resisted those who God sent to rescue and rule over them. And even though Joseph's brothers rejected him, God was with him this whole time, as Stephen says. God was present with Joseph outside of the promised land, meaning that the physical temple is not an important part of God's saving purpose. And God working in Joseph points back to the promise that God made with Abraham. We have to remember that God sovereignly uses, we see this in Genesis 50, right? God sovereignly uses Joseph, who, by the way, I firmly believe he deserved to get thrown in that pit. Uh, he was a spoiled brat. But 
God sovereignly uses that. And the sin of his brothers and the rejection of his brothers and brings him to this land where he suffers even more and prepares this for rescuing his family from famine. God sovereignly uses even sin to bring about his will. And and Joshua, not Joshua, Joseph actually says that later. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. But God was with Joseph this whole time, walking with him and setting this up. It, it, it is in Egypt that God brings refuge and salvation for his people and the growing family of Abraham. He goes from about 70 people or so all the way up to 600,000 people. That's a lot of babies. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, but God exalted him over all Egypt. And even though Jesus was rejected by his own, God has exalted him over all. And what kept Joseph staying faithful during these dark times, as we look back even to Genesis 35 and to 50, and even in what Stephen talks about here, as he is being betrayed by his brothers, being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, imprisoned, was the assurance that no matter what was happening, God was with him. So remember how God was with Joseph, Stephen says. Before the temple, remember how our fathers rejected those God sent to deliver. Remember how God was with Joseph, blessing him in the promised land. Not in the promised land, but in Egypt. The temple is not crucial for God's saving purpose, but the promise is fulfilled in the righteous man who you reject, as Stephen says. And then he goes into verse 37 to 34, and he says, Remember what God did with Moses, he says. And Stephen takes the to- most of the time to walk through this. Because again, remember, it's one of the things he's being accused of. He's talked about God's presence. And how God's presence isn't uh, controlled by a geographical location or some sort of four walls. But that God has always been with his people. The temple pointed to something greater. But now let's look at Moses. Stephen takes most of his time right here. How God delivered Israel under Moses' leadership as they wandered in the desert. Remember that the people of the synagogue of the freemen were accusing Stephen of the blasphemy against him, which is to speak against Moses, against the law, and against God, against the temple, which is where God dwelled. And here Moses' birth is described as beautiful in God's sights, favored, set apart. And God protects him during uncertain times. Think about all the things that had to happen, right? He was put into this wicker basket, put in the river now, floated down the river, and suddenly, miraculously, gets Pharaoh's wife, or, sorry, daughter. How is that not God sovereignly working out all things? Raising up somebody to deliver his people from slavery, even though God brought them into that place to save them at the same time. Not one part is out of God's control. And God continues to be with Moses during this time. Stephen isn't just talking about what happened to Moses, but that a man raised and educated in Pharaoh's house was God's choice to deliver Israel from slavery, to fulfill his promise to Abraham through the righteous one, Jesus. Stephen points out how Moses killed an Egyptian for beating up on an Israelite. And I've always been confused by this reaction. If someone was beating up on me and someone came to rescue me, I'd be pretty thankful. 
That wasn't their response. Their response was rejection of Moses' leadership and judge. There was a strained relationship that was already there with Moses and Israel from the very beginning. And God was working through Moses to bring deliverance, but the Israelites still rejected him and Moses left to be in the wilderness. It was there that Moses met God in the burning bush when God calls him to go back to Egypt and free his people. And if you remember all of that, uh, all that dialogue between him and, and, and God, Moses wasn't exactly the most bravest of men. How many excuses did he come up with? I can't do that. I don't speak well. I can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And God's like, just do it. I'll be with you. But don't rush over the point that Stephen gives here. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. The temple, what made the temple holy? Who is the one who makes a place holy? It's God. And wherever he is, is a holy place. God isn't limited to any one place. God shows himself to Moses in the desert. A temple didn't physically contain God. The temple had to point to something greater. The temple was a representation of God's presence and dwelling with his people, but it pointed to a greater dwelling. Stephen brings us to probably the most important revelation that God gives to his people, which again happens outside of the promised land. God gives the law, like the video we just saw, I leaned over to my wife while the video was going. I was like, oh, I'm literally talking about this. <laughs> and God is the one who makes all things holy. In verse 35 to 43, we see Stephen saying, remember with me how Israel rejected God by rejecting Moses. And this, I, every time I read this, you know, I, you think, you go through this passage and you go, oh man, Israel, like, come on guys, can't you get it? Like, he wasn't even gone that long. But how many times, how many days do we forget that God's presence and that he saved us and we choose to cherish something else over him? They made it weeks. Sometimes we don't even make it a minute. So right in the middle of God working salvation, see, God literally just calls him, out of, he calls him out of Egypt. We call this the Exodus. And he's bringing them to the promised land. He's done all of these 10 plagues. He's, he split the, sea in, the Red Sea in, in half and allowed them to walk on dry land. He, he's saved them from uh, Pharaoh's army. He did all of those things. And they choose to cherish something else. They reject Moses. Moses was rejected, Stephen says, as ruler and judge, and Israel re- rejects Moses' leadership. And this is shown in verses 40 to 41 as Israel sets up a golden calf to worship as Moses was going up to be with God on Mount Sinai. And this is the climax of Israel's rejection of God. Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, and they were bowing down to worship of a golden calf. And God gave them freedom. God shows himself to them specifically. And they chose to think that Egypt wasn't so bad after all and worship a thing rather than the creator. 
And just as they rejected Jesus as Lord, Stephen points and paints a picture for us as Moses being a type of Christ, that they also rejected Moses. He's building his argument. Both were sent by God. Both uh, served as a redeemer and both did wonders and signs and both were rejected. And as in verse 37, Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted about. Both of these people were deliverers sent by God and were rejected by Israel. As one commentator says, the salvation brought by Moses was accompanied by wonders and signs. The parallel with Stephen's day is hard to miss. Though Moses performed signs and wonders, the Israelites ultimately rejected him, just as the rulers and leaders reject the signs and wonders performed by the followers of Jesus. And just as they rejected the same from Jesus, it was the same Moses who promised that another prophet like himself would come. The implications being that the prophet to come was Jesus, and they rejected him too. So they chose to cling to something else. It's amazing what happens when our attention is diverted from Christ and we begin to cling to other things. And that often comes up in how we react to certain circumstances that come in our life. Ultimately, they chose something they made with their hands for salvation. You know, I think of myself as kind of handy. Kind of. I grew up with a pastor who didn't even own a screwdriver. And I always have that image in the back of my mind. But to trust everything that I make with my hands as something that I can rely upon that will last forever is faulty. I've lived in my house for four years. I still haven't finished the baseboards. But the baseboards that are there are already starting to wear out, which means I have to go back and do it again. They were trusting in things of their own hands. This is a clear understanding of a very important part of salvation. God's promises couldn't be fulfilled by Israel on her own. Stephen put it really well in in verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols, were rejoicing in the works of their hands. The idolatry is worse than just making some sort of physical thing. They were clinging to something else. We're funny people, aren't we? I think it's simple to look at these stories and shake our heads, but this is our story too. How often has a church thought if we implement something that the church will grow? And again, Acts tells us over and over and over again, that it's the word of the Lord that increases. But that's called idolatry. How often have we thought, if I just get a little better at this, if I can just work a little harder at killing that sin, if I could just do that a little bit more, God's going to love me more. That's called trying to save yourself. You should work at it but we work at it by the power of the Holy Spirit, not with my own hands. And do you see God's response? 
In verse 42, it says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heavens, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And that's what God's response was to Israel's rejection. That's a, that is from Amos 5. Did you bring, me, bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, Amos says, O house of Israel? You shall take up Skuath, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you made for yourself, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. See, Israel has a history of clinging to other things for salvation, things that they were building with their hands, if it be an idol or if it be a temple. Even in the promised land that God brought them to, this is an interesting warning that we see here from Stephen's argument because it's a very similar thing that Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. See, in both places, the sin is idolatry. And God gives people over to worship things other, uh, other than what they are created to do. And this brings out the most darkest and most inhumane desires. And this is about the refusal to make God the center and the sustainer of all things, making the creature worshipped over the creator. And all sin is failing to prize and praise God as a giver of every good thing. And God brought Israel into the promised land, and they still rejected him. They prized the creation above the creator. And he sends Jesus, the righteous one, and, 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 and the person that the, the temple and Moses are pointing to, and they reject him. They were clinging to Moses and the temple for things that would save them, but even history shows that they were rejecting him and ultimately rejecting Jesus. It was Moses that pointed to Jesus, and just like Moses, you rejected him. What about the temple, this fancy building you hold so high and tightly to? So then he goes on to verses 44 to 50. He says, remember with me, he says, remember with me that what God did in the days of David and Solomon See, God made his dwelling amongst his people in a tent, a temporary thing. God's glory was there. Exodus 40 says that. But it was still temporary. Solomon comes and God blesses David and gives uh, a stability to the land of Israel. He dies. His son takes over, and God allows Solomon to build and to prosper, and he's the one that builds the temple. But the Jews mistakenly thought that only the temple was associated with God's presence. But Stephen here, he quotes Psalm 11, verse 4, saying that all of heaven and earth are his dwelling and his dwelling place, not the temple. Even Psalm 145, verse 18, which is, again, in the Old Testament, says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. It doesn't say you have to be somewhere. And this comes most fully in Jesus Christ, the incarnation. 
God came to dwell among us, taking on flesh so that we may truly call him Emmanuel, God with us. This is what Jesus does. In verse 44, the tent of witnesses had the Ark of the Covenant and tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, and they were the testimony. And all the items that were in the tent of witness uh, pointed God's people to God's presence and life-giving power. Every part of the items that were in the tent pointed to this one fact, that God's people prayed to an ever-present God, not one that was trapped in a box. But Israel tried to make it about them, something that they made with their hands. And when they, their attention was diverted away from who God is to the things that they made with their hands. And this, is, and this has been the problem since Adam and Eve. As one person put it, every deviation from God's way has centered on self-effort and self-justification. They were clinging to other things to save themselves. And Stephen's trying to make this point to them. Look, I haven't blasphemed against the temple. I haven't blasphemed against Moses. All I'm doing is I'm pointing to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of these things. You're clinging on the wrong thing. And the thing that you're clinging on is going to bring you down the path of hell. They were clinging to God's gracious gifts, but not God himself. They were worship creation over the creator. Our sinful nature always tries uh, to build something with our own hands, thinking and believing that it's our own merits or our own works or, or something, something that we did that is the measure of holiness and goodness. But as we saw, what made the land holy that Moses was standing on? It was God who makes it possible for us to boldly approach the throne of grace of a holy God, it's Jesus who is our mediator. Pastor Matt was talking about that. And Stephen is telling the people who are listening that the way to salvation isn't a temple or in Moses. The way to salvation is in the exact opposite. Have you ever heard, and some of you I hope have, heard the old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cliff for Me? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Stephen is forcing the people listening. He's, he's really forcing us as well to ask ourselves a very important question. Are you trusting God's promised Savior alone? Or are you thinking that your own form of worship or your own traditions, or the awesome, amazing church you go to, or whatever will save you. It's then we begin to defend our traditions and missing the Savior. Israel was clinging to Moses in the temple and rejecting the righteous one. That all of those things actually point to Remember back in Acts, as Jesus was walking with his, his disciples, as he was walking with them along the road to Aramaeus, he said what? He explained to them from all the prophets and all the law how it pointed to him. 
So we continue to be on this highway of hell, a highway that leads to destruction. And that's why Stephen says what he says in these next verses. Because in 51 to 53, he says, Hear me and repent, he says. So this isn't exactly a way that I would say this is a great way of starting your evangelism. As he says in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Awesome. You think about it, though. When we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, how often do we get to the, we skip all of the bad stuff and just get to the good stuff? God loves you, we say. Come to Jesus, we say. God loves you. He's the best. Let him be your papa, sky daddy. All those other things they say on TikTok. Only the younger people get it. It's okay. (laughs) He says, no. You are sinners. That's how he starts his gospel message. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You Gentiles. You people who aren't the people of God. You've broken the law of God. And because you've broken the law of God, your only right in this world is hell itself. You stiff-necked people, he says to them. I think it's a reminder for us of how we need to start our gospel presentation. Probably saying someone is stiff-necked is probably not the best way. But in order for us to understand why the good news is so good, we need to understand the bad news first. So when someone comes to me and says, hey, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I generally ask a couple other questions, like how good is the good news? Because sometimes it's not really good. It's just not bad as the bad news. But what I want to know is bad news first, because then it makes this good news even sweeter. And that's what the gospel is. We've all sinned against God. And because of that sin, we're only, we only get one thing, and that's hell. But Jesus Christ steps down from his throne, as we just learned about adding to himself humanity. He's both human and God, paying the price for our sin, so that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, who are resting in him, saying that his work is sufficient to save, not my hands, but his, will be saved. We need the bad news before we can get the good news. God's people would hear, and here's another example. He's really telling them, telling the Israelites that are listening, he's saying, God's people would hear his word and they would seek to obey it. But you haven't. Stephen actually points back to the prophets and God's messengers who Israel has rejected. I think about Jeremiah 6, verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. You know, sometimes, uh, especially when we're confronting sin, we open God's word and say, look, this is what God's word says. It's precious and dear to us. 
And this is what God's word says. And how someone reacts to the reading of God's word shows a lot about their heart. But just like Jesus, you rejected the one, these people too. And you are, as he says, resisting the Holy Spirit. We have seen the evidence building up against them. Even back into chapter, into chapter 2, they are unfaithful, unbelieving, and don't know God. And they are doing the same thing that the people did before them who, filled, who, who were rejecting God's prophets. In verse 52, Stephen brings up the very valid question. It's rhetorical, by the way. The answer has already been given. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? All of them. You've got to remember that the prophets in the Old Testament were the people that came to God's people and said, thus says the Lord God Almighty. He warned, they warned God's people. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. Elijah was, he had a rough go too. From Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, who have they not persecuted? Jesus was the last in a long line of people God has sent that uh, sent his people to deliver them that they had persecuted. And it was Jesus who was persecuted to the point of death. He says, you rejected the Lord Almighty, the suffering servant, as Isaiah 53 says. You rejected Jesus Christ. But do you know the big difference between the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus? The prophets speak of the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning that it is only through the persecution and the death of the righteous one, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of the righteous one, that our sins are taken away and we can now share in his righteousness. Meaning that it's only through believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that we can be made right before a holy God. Have your sins forgiven, have your brokenness healed to be able to have a relationship with the one you were created to have a relationship with? There are only two options here. And this is why Stephen's words are so blunt. Either you hear and reject or you hear and receive. The people reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject salvation and accept eternal hell. To accept Jesus is to accept salvation and receive eternal life. And Stephen calls the people to listen, to remember that God has always been with his people and that the law and the temple were pointing us to the righteous one who has come to save and who alone can save. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, we do not like to remember our sins. But if you remember it, God will forget it. Whereas if you forget it, God will remember it against you. And what Stephen is telling the people who are listening is that true faith and true repentance aren't found in a building or in a set of traditions, but in Jesus Christ alone. If the people who hear want to be found to be like Abraham or to be like Joseph and Moses, they need to cling to the cross and not find their confidence in their rituals that ended up crucifying Jesus. 
The same God who worked powerfully in all of these people is the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Through Jesus Christ, we are offered an undeserved gift of being grafted into God's own people through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not by works of our hands, but by the works of God that we are saved. It's because of Jesus that those who were once slaves can be adopted as sons and daughters. So what? You said. The people of the synagogue accused Stephen of blasphemy, which is to speak against Moses, the law, and against God, against his temple, which is where God used to dwell. But Stephen's defense is about two things. Israel has repeatedly rejected the people God sends, and that builds up to the rejection of Jesus, who Moses actually prophesied of. And second one, God is sovereign and majestic and can't be contained by a building made by human hands. No matter how hard we try to put God in a box, he will never be contained in it. God's presence had never been limited to a geographical postal code or zip code for my American friends. Israel thought they were good before God because, well, you know, we have this fancy temple. Well, because we have these things that are built with our own hands, they were clinging to everything else but the one who saves. And here's the main point. To cling to anything but Jesus for salvation is to reject Jesus entirely. Stephen clung to this truth so tightly that he was prepared to make a stance like he was right now. You think about that, right? He already knows that he's going to die. You know that. You feel it. You know that this is a kangaroo court, that there's nothing that could possibly happen. So he just goes all in. At the risk of his own life, he didn't run away from the arguments when it was viewed as important for the kingdom of God. Stephen never compromised with the truth of God, especially when it was at stake. And we need men and women who are convicted in our time too. Stephen pointed at the heart of the issue, that Israel had elevated their traditions over their God. And God presents presence wasn't defined by a building. It was defined by Jesus, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. And to cling to the truth of Jesus sends us out as a church gathered to scatter. What a reminder to us. And what happens when we take our eyes off of Christ? We begin to deviate to other things that are centered on self-efforts and self-justification. Our sinful natures are always trying to build something with our hands, believing that we deserve some sort of measure of holiness or goodness because, you know, we've worked hard enough at it. But the way of salvation is the exact opposite, like it says in the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. See, Stephen calls Israel stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and resisting the Holy Spirit because they didn't cling to the cross thinking that they had something in their hands to give a holy God. Doing the same is the highway that leads to destruction. Remember the question that Stephen is forcing each of us to ask. 
Am I trusting in God's promised Savior alone, or am I sentimentally disposed to thinking that my traditions, my denominational affiliations, or particular forms of worship are what saves? When we cling to anything for salvation but Christ, we will find ourselves defending the tradition. This is the way things have always been. And then missing the Savior of which they talk of. Look at the history lesson that Stephen gives us. All the traditions and all the temple were pointing to the one thing, Jesus Christ, who is God with us. In Hebrews 11, it lists Abraham, Joseph, Moses as men who lived by faith, waiting for the righteous one. We're no longer waiting. We have him. He's here. Stephen faced the council with faith in the righteous one who died for his sins and rose again. The one he proclaimed to the council, he clung to the present hope of Jesus Christ. To cling to anything else would be a mistake that leads to death. There must be true faith and true repentance if we are going to find ourselves with these people we see. Cling to the cross, as the old hymn says, are you? When we read through the Old Testament, we see a story upon story of how God raised the dead and powered barren women to give birth to bringing the life where there was no life. And when we look at Jesus rising from the dead, which is called the resurrection, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked triumphantly out of the grave, offering new life to those who are under the curse of sin and death. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. It's only through triumphant Jesus Christ that we can be free from sin and death. So what are you clinging to this morning? To cling to anything but Jesus for salvation is to reject Jesus entirely. Let us pray as we continue to worship our awesome God. Father God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to worship you. May we continue to make much of you today, Lord. Help us to cling to you and to you alone, because we are only saved by Christ alone. Amen.